Morning, everybody. Happy Boris is on trial day and welcome to the news agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by the Mirror's political correspondent, Ashley Calvin. Morning, Ash. Morning. Morning. Uh, this is the People's Paper Review, so get into the comments. Ask us your questions. Join in. Those of you listening later on podcast are just going to have to ask a lawyer to do your homework nine months late instead. So what have we got for you? Well, the mirror has splashed on that dossier of not very much dodgy evidence, which Boris handed to the Privileges Committee yesterday morning, uh, nine months after they asked for it and 48 hours before he needed to discuss it. More on that in a bit. But first, I want to go to page 10. And there's some reaction to uh, yesterday's report about the Met being institutionally racist, sexist and just about every other kind of ist you can think of. Now, this reaction comes from Doreen Lawrence, uh, Baroness now, but her son, Stephen, was murdered 30 years ago in a racist murder. And the investigation into his killers was so badly handled that another report then found, guess what? The Met was institutionally racist. Now, actually, Doreen says she's not surprised to find the Met steely, still clearly has racism rampant in its ranks. She says it is not never has been a case of a few bad apples. It is rotten to the core. <sighs> If no one was surprised by yesterday's report, I mean, that no one was, were they? It was kind of, well, of course. And absolutely nobody was shocked by it, really, not even the Home Secretary. Uh, so is, is this time, is anything actually going to be done about it, do you think? I mean, you you, you, would, you can only hope. Um, but after 30 years since, well, 20-odd years since the 1999 McPherson report into the Metropolitan Police, um, which was launched, obviously, after Stephen Lawrence's murder in 1993, found, as you just mentioned, that the force is institutionally racist. Now, again, we have this finding yesterday. And while the Met Police Commissioner, Mark Rowley, has come out and said he's accepted the findings in full, what is not accepted is the terminology that the Metropolitan Police is institutionally racist. And the Home Secretary, Suella Braden, again, um, backed him up on that yesterday in the House of Commons. She said the, the term was politically charged. Um, but you, you, you do get the sense that the Metropolitan Police can't change unless it accepts this central finding from the report. I mean, uh, Baroness Lawrence came out yesterday, um, mm. mother of Stephen Lawrence, and she said any refusal to accept that term, that institutional racism exists within the police service, will mean that any attempt to change is doomed to failure. Now, that's that should be the starting point. Mm. And then the building blocks of how do you deconstruct and reconstruct the Metropolitan Police to rebuild public confidence. How can she say this is uh, politically charged? Because... You know, when the McPherson report came out, it was 1999, the Tories were in power. It was a, a report into what had happened uh, mm. previously, um, you know, six years before that. The fact that something is institutionally has a problem, whether, you know, institutionally blind to a particular mm. issue for some reason, then, I mean, that's that's not a matter of politics. That's not a matter of left wing saying it or right wing saying it. It's it, it, That's just a... If that's a fact that someone's found in an inquiry, in an investigation, then fact is fact, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think the problem with the Metropolitan Police Commission and the Home Secretary is they don't want the whole police force to be branded as racists and sexists and homophobes. Now, mm. I think it's—I don't think anyone is suggesting that to start with. I think what we're suggesting is, is this isn't just one bad apple. I mean, Louise Casey, the author's report was on BBC Newsnight last night. She gave quite a powerful interview. And she was saying, I, the reason I've decided to 
give this definition, this branding to the Metropolitan Police. But her, through her research, she found that 49% of black and ethnic minority officers suffered racism in the police force. A third of women suffer sexual harassment. And 19% of officers who actually identify as being gay, those ones that are actually out in the police force, have experienced homophobia. And what is that if it's not institutional? Well, exactly. I mean, another word might be systemic. You could say yes, the system, exactly. the machinery, the, the the fact that when you're in the force and you feel in, in, unable to complain about something to your line manager, because if you do, uh, as some officers have said, the next time you find yourself out on the street confronting some thug and you call for backup, there's there's no one going to come for backup because they think you should get a kicking. Mm. Um, th that that's a that's a problem of the machinery. It's not a problem of an individual. They're trying to say there's there's a problem with individuals in the police, aren't they? That's the that's the the government's point of view is that there are some bad apples. Perhaps mm. there's a lot of bad apples, and that that it's the individual's responsibility, not the police's responsibility. And there's nothing the police can do, kind of thing. Whereas the Casey report is saying if you've got a bad apple, then the the barrel has a problem. Um, and it you can you can fix the barrel. You can make sure the, the apples don't go bad in some mm. respect. But the, you know, Bradman came out and said this is really Sadiq Khan's problem as mayor of London. He's got some responsibility for uh, operational control of the Met, hasn't he? Is she right? Is this is any of this on Sadiq Khan's head? He's been running London for the past seven years. Yeah, well, I think this is a long-term problem in the Metropolitan Police, and obviously Sadiq Khan has oversight of the Metropolitan Police, so he does have some questions to answer. But at the end of the day, this the book stops with the Secretary and the Metropolitan Police. And I think they, they must now start... I mean, it, it's hard to see how they can rebuild the police force or rebuild trust in the police force without having some sort of independent oversight. I mean, it's clear that the Metropolitan Police can't mark their own homework anymore. I mean, it's had we just spoke a moment ago about how it's 30 years since the um, McPherson report branded the force institutionally racist and we don't seem to have had any progress. Um, but I think if they if they start by recognising that central tenant from the report of, of the branding and what's happening, I think people might start begin to be rebuild confidence in the police force. Um, but it's it does feel like away, away from that. It's going to be a bit tricky, though, isn't it? Now, Tom says it's yet another waste of money on reports that things that all the dogs on the street know. The Tory party is the three monkeys. Hear no evil, hear no evil, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Uh, you're perhaps a little bit right, Tom. Um, so what's happening, actually, is that there are reviews across a lot of forces all around the country about who's in their ranks and who perhaps has been guilty of criminality and they haven't been suspended or they're allowed back on duty, that kind of thing. And there's going to be so as a result, there's going to be a lot of court cases coming up in the next few months about police officers doing terrible things. And it's going to give the impression that this is a real massive issue. It, the police will say, this is us cleaning house. This is a result of our cleaning these people out. Um, and hopefully it will be a bit you know, cleaner afterwards. But most of us, as Tom was saying there, but most of us realise that among you know, many very good, well-motivated police officers, you are bound to have, and we can all think of some and come across them probably, people who are attracted to being in a uniform, attracted to using the weapons and the sanctioned violence and the power, because that, you know it gives them cover, it gives them a thrill, it gives them um, access to all the things that they want to have access to they're going to they're going to attract bad apples not just create them so those ones who have to be kept out of the police force and preferably in a jail cell in most cases so why does the 
it's a silly question. I don't think you can answer it, maybe. But why does the police itself, as an institution, not realise that those people are going to gravitate to join the police? Because we can all see that happening. Mm. You know, we, we all know it happens. The police know it happens. But the institutions don't seem to accept that they will attract people who want to murder and rape and get away with it. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the shocking things is how these people managed to sort of become police officers, serving police officers in the first place. I mean, the, the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Squad um, comes into pretty intense criticism in the report. So this is obviously a part, this was squad was what um, Sarah Everard's killer um, was part of, uh, Wayne Cousins, um, who's jailed earlier this year. Now, how on earth people like that can become officers in this elite protection force of parliament and the diplomatic service mm. and then not to think that this system obviously needs completely deconstructing reconstructing um how this actual force can continue to operate in its current form if people like that are allowed to fall through the net exactly um can we have mike's comment back up as well it was just there now, the dpg that um Ashley was just referring today, used to, it was reformed actually, Diplomatic Protection Group, from what used to be called the Territorial Support Group, the TSG. And that was known within the Met by officers I knew who referred to it as the Thick and Stupid Group. And they just sent them in with their size 10s, go and kick people, because that's what the TSG did. That got broken down, reformed the DPG. It's got the same people in it, hasn't it? Now, Mike says there seems to be a reductionism to the term institutionally racist. It doesn't mean totally racist. It means anyone with those views does not have to fear that those views need to be hidden or will impact their career. Quite right. And it also means, of course, that uh, if you report something up the institution's chain of command, nothing will get done about it. That's the problem with the institutional issue. And probably many of us have had problems with places that we've worked over the years where it's the institution doesn't want to deal with whatever problem you raise with them. Now, D says, morning, D, if we cannot trust our police, who else can people who work in that area or the public turn to? Quite right. And one of the most chilling bits in um, Louise Case's report was her saying that one person she'd interviewed said that rape is effectively legal in London because nothing will be done about it which is absolutely horrifying. Now, thank you for your questions on that, everybody. We need to move on to the main event of the day. And at two o'clock, uh, Boris Johnson, former prime minister of this parish, will give evidence in a four hour session in Parliament about the lockdown parties, what he knew and what he told us about it. Um, now, he was asked, uh, and I've got some stuff, it's 52 pages I went through yesterday. He was asked for his evidence in July. He was asked for it again in August. He was asked in December, in January and two weeks ago in March. He finally provided it 48 hours before the hearing. Uh, and it seems actually he's, he's the only person in the world surprised to find there were parties going on. Despite you know all the reports, despite the hoo-ha, despite Allegra Stratton's video and having to fire her for laughing about a party, he still says the revelations in the Sue Gray report shocked the public and they shocked me. Just before we get into the detail of all this, I and mean, what is the tone of these 52 pages? What does it say to you? How does it read? I mean, so the first page of it is obviously it's repeating his apology from what happened in number 10 while the rest of the country was following the COVID rules. And then it also admits that he misled Parliament. Now, one of the things the committee is, in, is looking at is whether he misled Parliament and whether he did so intentionally and recklessly. That's what the committee have to prove. But then he turns around and then throughout the rest of the report, which, by the way, is funded by you, the taxpayer, 
Um, he then goes on to blame a whole range of scenarios, um, blames AIDS, he blames how photographs have been weaponized by the media, how he's working day in and day, day out to manage the COVID crisis, how number 10 is an old cramped on ta- London townhouse. And you get this sort of page after page of excuses at the mirror sort of expertly demonstrated on the front page this morning. And you get the sense of the admission at the beginning of the report is just a sort of rehearsal of what he said in previous months and years yes. on this. And it does really give you a sense of how the, the committee is going to happen today. I mean, he's going to he'd probably provide a statement at the beginning of the four hour session, admitting his uh, giving his apology again, admitting he'd misled Parliament. And then three hours and 50 minutes later, he is going to use the rest of it to rehearse and regurgitate these excuses. Name everybody else, probably, and everything else. We've got one one or two paragraphs on the front page, 51 pages of excuses. Um, And it seems to be focusing on the fact that the regulations were followed, but not the guidance. There's been some hair splitting because this is written by barristers. This is what you'd expect. They're focusing on the difference between rules and guidance. The one was the law and the other was advice. And therefore, he seems to be saying in places that uh, they were within the rules, but outside the guidance. So unwise, but not unlawful, in other words. Mm. And Dean says he's just a typical narcissist or just basically blame everyone else, takes heat off himself. Um, There is loads of stuff in there, isn't there, Ash, about blaming Dominic Cummings, Martin Reynolds, Jack Doyle, uh, James Slack, the people who are running the press operation at Downing Street and so on. I asked these people and they all said it was fine. So I just carried on with things. Mm. I didn't see a problem with it. But someone pointed out yesterday, that's just like a police chief basically saying, well, no one told me I couldn't speed at 90 miles an hour. So I did. What's the problem? It's not my fault. I didn't, you know, he literally wrote the law. He wrote these rules. He presented them to Parliament. He wrote letters to small children saying, well done for not having your birthday party. And then he's there at a party in Downing Street raising a glass of wine in the air. Um, I mean, you're completely right. I mean, there's he goes on that there's not a single document that indicates that I have received any warning or advice that any event broke or may have broken the rules. Now, the question is, if the rules were so complicated and so confusing, why was he imposing them on the rest of the country if he didn't understand mm-hmm. them himself? And... You do get, he goes on as well to say, I'd never dreamed of doing so, and sort of intentionally misleading Parliament. It, it just, I would never it, dream of misleading Parliament. And never, not me. <laughs> but this, this idea that he there's not a single document or advice that suggests he intentionally misled Parliament suggests that he didn't understand his own rules or yeah. wasn't really paying attention to the rules. And it just seems that this central defence is so weak that it's not going to stand up. And I think... The committee, when it published its first report a couple of weeks ago, it was said it should have been obvious that this was breaking the rules and it was sort of misleading Parliament. Um, how he manages to skirt around that today during this four-hour session will be um, want to keep our eyes on. We'll have to see, won't we? Now, Lazy says, Boris thinks he's above the rules and above the law. Today should be the end of his political career. If not, then there is something seriously wrong. The issue is, isn't it, this recklessness, whether or not the the the, com- the committee can really hang it on him to say that he knew what was going on. 
and that by knowing what was going on, it should have been obvious to him and therefore he was misleading Parliament. He shouldn't have relied on the advice of his aides because he should have been saying to the aides, that's not, doesn't sound right to me or something. And he's going to be focusing on the difference between guidance and rules. Uh, and I suspect because he's up there for four hours, although he's got the lawyers with him, hasn't he, uh, Ash, he's going to be referring to them for some of his answers. But... We all know that when Boris Johnson sits in front of a select committee of some sort, he he ad libs. He goes off piste. He he is he does not stick to the script. I don't, I don't know if you remember. Not. Sorry, I don't know if you remember the last time he was at a committee in Parliament. He was sitting there at the Liaison Committee in I think it was July twenty twenty one, and at the same time he was sitting there in the committee being questioned by the most senior MPs in Parliament. There was a cabinet coup going on next door number 10 and he was just sort of acting as if this whole thing he's held down for from number 10 wasn't happening and that's one mp had to point out to him that there's a cabinet a sort of cabal of cabinet ministers that have just arrived in number 10 demanding your resignation and he was just sitting there sort of mumbling away at various issues yeah no but the, you know he's he said wrong things in these situations before he said that nazmin zagari ratcliffe was was training journalists things mm. like this he fluffs things up quite often this way. so the the people who are questioning him and those of us who are watching him are going to be waiting at some point in the course of these four hours for him to start doing as mike was suggesting there and as we've got in the paper a bit of boris bingo start talking about piffle and quoting dog latin and and, and just going off piste and starting to say the things that are going to trip him up because that's you can pretty much guarantee that's that's what everyone is going to be hoping for and the lawyers are there to try and stop him doing isn't it Mm. Well, one of the commentators just uh, mentioned how it could, is it going to be, should it be the end of his political career? And I mm. think it could well be the first step on the end of his political career if um, things, don't go, things don't go as well as planned for him. Because, I mean, this process is sort of quite long and you, you're probably not going to get the result of this committee until sort of after Easter, after the local elections in May. And they can either come back and issue sort of say to Boris Johnson, you need to apologise to the House Commons. They can dock some of his salary, which I suspect won't harm him that much after the speech he's been given recently. Or they can suspend him from Parliament. And the most severe end of that is suspending him from Parliament for over 10 days. Mm. And if they do that, what that can happen is then trigger a ballot in his constituency. And if 10% of his constituents sign that ballot, he could face a by-election. Now, we all know with the current poll rating the Conservative Party have, he faces quite... faces a tough task keeping hold of his West London seat if he does face a by-election, which could mm. mean the end of his parliamentary career. Could be pretty stinky. And now Ron says he'll only get a nine-day suspension. That's my prediction. Uh, Tom there was saying he should hand his money back. And the fact is that we've, we've paid, as you said, Ash, we've paid for this um, report that's been compiled, his dossier, his defence, mm. come on the taxpayer. But Boris Johnson's earned, what, four and a half million from speeches recently? Why? In God's in God's name, are we paying for it? Well, it's a question we've been asking number 10. Um, the defence from Rishi Sunak's government is that he was taking these actions while a government minister, while a prime minister, and the precedent is that the government, the taxpayer, pays for the defence of government ministers. And they've used previous precedents about the Iraq war and the Chilcot inquiry and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and your, the legal defence of ministers during the COVID crisis will probably be paid for by the taxpayer as well when it comes to the COVID inquiry. Mm. They're relying on precedent. But there is the moral argument of whether 
a person who has been earning so much since leaving office should be relying on taxpayer funded. Yeah, leaving. and he's, he's not he's not unlike the Chilcot inquiry. He's not being questioned or spoken to in terms of uh, government policy or something that you know the institution under his control kind of to some extent that they they, they did officially. He is being accused on an individual basis as an independent human being of misleading parliament as an MP. Um, and that, I, I think that's not quite the same as a Chilcot inquiry, but we'll see, won't we? Rosemary says his defence is costing the taxpayer £200,000. I'm a waspy woman. He lied to us too. These are the people who, uh, women who had their pension dates put back. We're having to raise money by crowdfunding, crowdfunding to ask for a judicial review of the parliamentary ombudsman interim report. You've got people having to crowdfund for things. Uh, and COVID families for justice as well, people like that, who are having to find ways to support their own legal teams to go and do things. Uh, and yet he seems to get one for free, which is, you know, adds to the very poor opinion of things. But if, you know, if he can get through this in terms of there not being a, a very big sanction from the committee, if he can prove that, yes, I misled Parliament, but it was unintentional, for example, uh, or mm. I'm just an idiot, uh, don't blame me, or only get a few days uh, sanction from Parliament. Is that going to make any difference to the rest of us? Because when he stood up and said the things he said to Parliament, we all knew, not just in the mirror who had the evidence, everybody in the country knew that he was fudging that. Everyone knew he'd been at the parties. We knew that he knew what was going on and no one believed him. I mean, the, the committee here could exonerate him, couldn't they? They could say, absolutely innocent, no problem, nothing to see here whatsoever. Mm. And the whole country is still going to despise him. Yeah, I, I think you raise a good point because I think, as you mentioned, most of the public have already made up their mind on this. They already have firm opinions of it. Um, and whether this committee, his appearance today is going to change anything, I sincerely doubt it. What it is going to change is sort of the directory of Boris Johnson's political career. And whether it is the beginning of the end or not is something that we'll soon find out. But I, I just don't get the impression that this is going to change anyone's opinions. I think we had a poll in the paper today saying 70% of people believe that he misled Parliament. Yeah. I don't think those people with views are probably going to shift after today. No, I'm not entirely sure he wants, he's going to be able to shift it or is he even going to try. I would have thought he's just trying to wriggle out of the current problem as he has done uh, throughout his career. Leslie says, how damaging is this going to be for the Conservative Party? Although it may, you know, it's pretty, pretty damning for Johnson. I don't think it's going to sort of bounce back on Rishi too much, although Johnson has tried to include him in the report because they both got fined for the same cake ambush that happened. But let me just read you a quote. This comes from uh, an article that was written by Cleo Watson. She was a Downing Street aide whose leaving due was one of the parties that was uncovered by the mirror. And she said this about Boris Johnson. She works in the office next door to him. He insisted on working from his downstairs office while isolating. This is after he got pinged. Very soon, this required setting up chairs as barriers in the doorway as he couldn't resist stepping over the threshold into our adjoining room to peer over shoulders of what people were working on, invariably in a pair of someone else's reading glasses he'd found lying around. So the prime ministerial puppy gate was created. He'd kneel on the seats, his elbows propped over the top, like a great unruly golden retriever howling for attention. Now, <clears throat> leaving aside for a moment, the fact that he was putting on other people's glasses in the middle of a pandemic in a cramped townhouse where everyone was stuck there with each other every day and he'd just had COVID and everyone was trying not to spread it about. Um, 
that quite clearly shows that that is someone who doesn't feel the rules applied to him in that circumstance. It sounds rather like his staff did know the rules and were trying to get him behind those rules, struggling to keep him inside them. Perhaps that's why they had the parties, Ash. They knew the boss was never going to object. Yeah, I mean, the coach, I think there's a failure of culture in number 10, and it's obviously the culture is set from the top, from the prime minister. Uh, one question you have to ask is, if Theresa May was prime minister, would you imagine this going on in number 10 at the same time? <laughs> and I think most people would think not. Um, no, uh, Gordon. Yes, but who knows? But I think one of the uh, questions is in, raised an interesting question: Does this damage the reputation of the Conservative Party? Um, I'm not sure it does, but what it does damage is Rishi Sunak's attempt to get the Conservative Party back on track after sort of 12 months of complete chaos in the party. In the last few weeks, he's tried to focus on the issue of small boats crossing the Channel and the Brexit deal. He's just won. Uh, on concessions from the EU and um, the budget last week. Now, what this does is just a huge, Boris Johnson's committee that it's a huge distraction from his government. And there was even a part of the report yesterday, Boris Johnson's dossier, where he tried to drag Rishi Sunak back into it, reminding mm. everyone that the current prime minister was also fined by the Metropolitan Police. Um, so I don't think Rishi Sunak is going to be eager to watch the whole four hours of this session today from his number 10 flat. Um but I think he will be eager for this row to go away. Um, yeah, and for Boris to go with it. Yeah, well, he's given his MPs, if it does come to a vote in the Commons on whether he should be suspended, he's giving Conservative MPs a free vote, which is the not actually the normal precedent, because that's why it was so controversial back in December, November 2021, when Boris Johnson whipped his MPs to vote against the suspension of Owen Patterson, mm. lobbying, uh, allegations of lobbying. Um, so it'd be interesting to see which members of the Conservative Party vote for the suspension. Yeah. Mike says, under Theresa May, there may have been parties, but she wouldn't have been invited. Uh, <clears throat> what a cool thing to say, Mike. She's a very lovely lady. Um, it's, in, you know, there's, there seems to be the overall thing about this dossier seems to be that he's he's blaming other aides. He's naming other people and throwing them under the bus. He's saying they told me it was fine. He's saying they didn't misbehave. They, the parties escalated after I gave my speech and left. So I didn't know. I didn't realise yeah. what was going on. Um, and he says, you know, this will seem to be fine because these people were working together every day. And um, we were working very hard in the pandemic response. So it was a morale boost and it was an important part of leadership to make sure everyone was happy at work. But that really throws that into some uh, context, I suppose, the fact that other key workers who were also working to keep the country on track and working hard in the pandemic, whether they were nurses, whether they were bin men, whether they were shop workers, were not kicking back after work and having a pint of wine. Uh, and had they done so, they would have been arrested and their boss would have stopped them and, and all the rest of this. It, that that defence, that the main thrust of his defence is that we were working very hard, it was a very important job, therefore they needed to feel happy at work and there was no increased risk because they were working together all day anyway. Well, hang on, what about the, the, the risk of someone going into a care home to see a loved one when they've been tested, when they're covered in PPE. That was a lower risk, surely. So why weren't they allowed to do it when your guys were doing that? That's going to be the problem in the court of public opinion, isn't it? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, this is what most, this is what, why some people are so angry about this whole thing that happened. I mean, part of it is because 
people had to were unable to see dying relatives. They were unable to go to hospital. They had to sit socially distanced at funerals. I think the Queen was sitting socially yeah. distanced at the funeral the day after Number Ten held this raucous party where two cases of wine were brought into Downing Street. Um, and people, as you say, nurses, doctors across the country were doing intense shifts dealing with the COVID crisis. They weren't having cheese and wine events or two cases of wine brought to their hospitals no. um, after work. No one can imagine a, a wine fridge being installed in the A&E department so the doctors could relax at the end of a shift. Well, exactly. Not, yeah. not a thing. So why did it have to happen in Downing Street? Now, there's one more thing we need to talk about before we move on to anything else. <clears throat> what do you think, everybody, about Boris's appearance today at the um, at the Privileges Committee? Do you think it's going to go well? Do you think he's going to swing it? Do you think that he's being richly humiliated and it's terribly unfair? Do you think he's out of power and it doesn't matter anymore and we should all move on? Let us know your thoughts. But we need to get one bit in the report, which is where he talks about the Mirrors Pippa Crera, who works somewhere else now. We don't. We don't talk about that anymore. Um, but she first rang up with the story. Now, Jack Doyle, who was the director of communications, came to Boris and explained it to him, said there had been regular Friday night gatherings. And this was about one event that Pip was ringing about on December the 18th. Uh, and Boris's response was, and I quote, my initial reaction at the time was this of some kind of trial. Now, this is the bit I, I didn't even anticipate, he says later, this would be a big story. And this is the bit I find almost hardest to believe. He's a journalist of many years, many, many years. He knows you don't ring the Downing Street press office with allegations of criminal behaviour unless you have the evidence. It, it wasn't going to be a trial. There's no way anyone would have tried that one on. And, and not a big story. Not a big story. He seems to be using that as his excuse that he then later went into Parliament without notes, without preparation, and perhaps said the wrong thing at the dispatch box. Do you think that's going to be perhaps his his wriggle room, Ash? I don't think that will um, suffice as any sort of wriggle room whatsoever, whether he thought the story was going to be big or not at the time. I mean, the fact is the story exploded, and once the video was published of Allegra Stratton at this mock press conference, I think the public's anger just ignited. Um, I, just, I just don't think this is going to wash. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe it shows his lack of political awareness. His, um, he did often find himself having to U-turn as prime minister, whether he actually has a good sense of politics. Um, remains to be seen. No, or even a, a good sense of what a story is either as a journalist. Now, Dee says, I couldn't say goodbye to my husband when he was taking his last breath when he died of cancer. Boris has a lot to answer for. He does, Dee. I'm very sorry to hear about your husband. Um, and unfortunately... Boris isn't going to be answering to you. He's going to be answering to the Privileges and Standards Committee this afternoon from two o'clock. And he's not going to be thinking about you and people like you and the situation you found yourselves in. He's going to be thinking about himself and how to get through the next 24 hours without having to face re-election fundamentally. And I expect we'll, you know, there'll be some people who are watching it with popcorn and there'll be some people watching it through through their fingers and there'll be some people watching it in rage and fury and tears as well. Um, so that will be on these channels later on this afternoon. You'll be able to watch it live on the Mirrors Facebook and YouTube from two o'clock. And like we said, uh, Boris will give an opening statement about how he's terribly sorry about things and then spend three hours, 55 minutes saying it was all someone else's fault. Um, but do tune in and have a watch if you'd like to. At one point, he says in, uh, in his defence, actually, I also relied on what I was not told. I wasn't told that we couldn't do this. 
uh, ignorance of the law is no defense of law breaking, uh, as far as I uh, was told last time I broke it <coughs> by a policeman. So uh, good luck with that one, Boris. Now, um, thank you, everyone, for taking part. Thank you for um, all your questions so far. If you've got any more, uh, and say them now, and we'll try and have a wrap-up at the end. But uh, first off, there is some good news in the world. We managed to find it for you. Here it is. Now, we like a dog story. This is a good one. This is Bull Terrier Martha, who's pictured there. She was out walking in the woods near Leeds with her owner, Paul Millicent, uh, when she ran into a drain. Silly dog. Uh, her owner couldn't get her out, called the fire brigade. Yorkshire Water came out too. They still couldn't, tried in vain to reach her. But when they posted about the rescue on Facebook, Josh Longford uh, of a local drainage firm called Dr. Drainage rushed to the scene with his specialist equipment and everything, managed to get it down there, found that Martha was 26 metres in the drain uh, and they managed to locate her and from the top come in and dig her out. She's now back home and recovering and doing well, hopefully not going to go down any more drains. But actually, is this proof that social media really can flush out the best in us? Oh, yeah. I mean, not all, not all heroes wear capes. Um, it's definitely one of those good news stories on your among all this sort of grim news about inflation and food prices. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, people are, people are still very, very decent, generally speaking, in all directions. And this guy, he went down there not in the hope of advertising or anything else, but just trying to help out. He had the right kit. They needed the right kit. The fire brigade didn't have a 26-metre-long camera on a on a pipe so he had to go down there and he went and offered his services uh, just to help out to rescue a dog which i think is absolutely marvelous and i do hope that um her owner is going to keep her on the lead if they go in the same woods for a bit or maybe just block up the drain that might also if it's not in use and it's just sitting there and there's an open end maybe that'll be a better idea but hopefully uh, martha's learned not to go in great big long tunnels if she's chasing rats or something which is probably what she was up to i would expect but it's good news that she's back home it's good news as well that uh boris johnson is going to have to answer for some of his wrongdoing although whether he's actually going to give an answer that any of us think makes sense we'll have to wait and see won't we uh and it's good news that at least we know what the met's like even if the met doesn't want to accept it or the home secretary um thank you ash for taking us through all that and explaining it come back on these channels later on to see uh both pmqs at 12 o'clock and uh boris johnson's evidence starting from two and we will see you all again on monday for another edition of the news agenda till then tatty bye <laughs>